From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Today we dig in with Margaret Crome about her passion to increase stakeholder diversity amongst those affected by agriculture policy. Stretch outside of your comfort zone, find new partners, and make sure we have unknown stakeholders become leading stakeholders. True representation is what real democracy is all about, says Margaret. Margaret Crome is Policy Program Director for the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute in East Troy, Wisconsin. She works with the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition to develop programs and policies supporting environmentally sound, profitable, and socially responsible agriculture. She also conducts workshops nationwide on grant writing and using federal programs to support sustainable agriculture. Since October 2018, Margaret has served as Interim Coalition Director for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. We are continuing our conversation for today's In Her Boots podcast with Margaret Crome. Thank you, Margaret, for inviting us into your living room, literally. Mm -hmm. It's very cozy. And uh, a lot of things have percolated from your living room, right? In the sense of (laughs) ideas and coalition building and people and movements. And we closed our last episode with a topic, an area, something I know that's real close to your heart, especially having seen all these things grow over the years of diversity and including more voices in our sustainable ag movement and particularly at the leadership table. And could you could you share a little bit more about that, mm-hmm. how, sure. how things evolved and then we can take things on where we need to go? Yeah, sure. You know, Uh, I think what happened was I had an internship program for a lot of years, actually. We talked earlier about having um, some of my colleagues uh, who are now wonderful leaders in the sustainable ag movement who started as interns with me, and I'm so grateful that they did. And uh, over the years, I began to see the pattern that I had very few leaders of color apply. I mean, uh, potential interns of color apply. And I really struggled about that because I felt, do feel, that our movement's roots in the very white, demographically white, rural communities, farming communities of the upper Midwest, uh, didn't sufficiently capture the kinds of stakeholders who are affected by our policy work. And that if we really care about democracies, fair representation of um, our our work, we needed to make sure that we had stakeholders who were stakeholders of color. We had to have more diverse stakeholders, men and women and older and younger and people of color and 
other people in the agricultural world, not just farmers, but also eaters and also people working in food processing and farm workers. We have to have the, the diversity of people affected by the policies we are working on who may or may not know that they are being affected by them and by affected by the policy work we're doing. We have to draw them into the movement so that they can help inform us about what matters and help us set our policy priorities and help our work be relevant and be tailored to their needs. And that only happens when you first stretch outside of your comfort zone and find stakeholders who may or may not have ever thought very much about what you're doing and help connect the dots so that they see that it's relevant and find work that makes it make sense and then build them into our boards of directors and build them into staff positions and help them find internship positions that then build a staff positions. And so that's, but the reason to do it is not tokenism. It's very importantly not tokenism. It's not to feel good about ourselves as broad-minded people who bring in people of color. That's not it at all. It's about democracy. It's and having about, representation at right. the table. It's about making sure that we have unknowing stakeholders become informed leading stakeholders of color and other diversified categories. So that's why I care about it a lot. And I have, um, for years, when we first became the National Sustainable Ag Coalition, I say we because Michael Fields has been very actively involved always in first what was called the Sustainable Ag Coalition, then went, became national, emerged with another group and became the National Sustainable Ag Coalition, and about, which is about a decade ago, and it wasn't diverse enough. Can you tangent for a second, though, and, yeah. and talk about what NSAC is for folks? I mean, Sure, sure, sure. The National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition is a national membership-based group that works in the field of sustainable agriculture and food systems. And hands down, it's the most effective group that I've ever witnessed in any field I've worked in. I've never seen a group that did such a magnificent job of harnessing membership clarity about what the big issues are, the problems are, potential solutions might be, and really high-flying, super, super competent staff in Washington who both analyze the policy context, help create potential new policy remedies, bring in the grassroots members, just as you came to Washington once oh, with Oh, yeah, I'm indebted. And, and most, I say most, but most, if they're not, they should be. I mean, sustainable and organic organizations in the country are part of NSAC, like Moses is. And, always. Just, and it's, just, it's really a collective, collaborative voice oh, yeah. that none of us could do individually. None I mean, of us could cost, time, resource, et cetera. But I share all of that. And yeah, it brings people in to that realm of active farmer, active citizen. And if I can give a personal plug, I love the NSEC newsletter. I think that I is a great, people can just sign up for it free online, but it's a weekly summary or whenever things are needed and yeah. constituent calls are needed of this is coming up tomorrow and here's the number to your senator who sits on the appropriate committee, whatever it may be yeah. uh, that does that. But having seen NSEC grow and evolve, you're wanting to see more of our our nation, our democracy represented 
in that then as far as yes, the leadership. Yes, and have goes. now ever since it actually formed. So in 2009, when it formed from its previous two other national groups, SAC, which was the Upper Midwest group, and then another group, which was called the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture. When uh, these two groups merged and we became INSAC, we, many of us, were concerned that it just really wasn't diverse enough. And so uh, another wonderful colleague of mine, Lydia Villanueva, from uh, yes. Texas. <laughs> She's fabulous, yeah. She so Lydia and I co-chaired, helped form and co-chair the diversity committee within INSAC. And yeah, for years and years, I... Uh, co-chaired that with her, and uh, have had others from Michael Fields also who have uh, been very active and have co-chaired that committee. It's something that we, I think, feel so strongly about, and I'm so proud of INSAC for having opened up its understanding of how intentional we have to be, how we have to be intentional in how we say to our new members coming in, what do you understand about racial equity and do you see its relevance and why it's so important in the food system? And can you explain to me what you do? And can you bring, uh, can you get engaged with us on these issues of racial equity? And, you know, uh, we hire with uh, very active engagement from people of the, what's called the People of Color Caucus within NSAC. And we have every other week, we have racial equity readings within the staff on one afternoon every two weeks we have readings that we are given have been shared earlier and we discuss them and maybe there's a video or whatever but the point is it's really an active part of the way we are thinking and there's no blame associated with an organization like ours that doesn't come from that background but is working very hard to engage. And um, so I think it has been a really important part of how we move forward and how we hire and how we choose our issues. And it's extremely important to me. Every other issue area that I care about in the country needs to be thinking about racial equity too, not just the sustainable agriculture and food systems movement. But I'm proud that this movement, which had very different origins, takes it as deeply and as seriously as it does. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's great. How, how do you define racial equity? I mean, when you say working towards it, what would that be like? What would a better future look like? What are some of the sure. variables? Well, some of the considerations are what are the injustice? What are some of the racial injustices mm-hmm. that we experience? And of course, one doesn't have to be steeped in the details of the Pigford case that many of us are familiar with, but we've had such well, give, a history. Give, us, give a quick sure. sum, I, sentence. Yeah. Sure, I will do that. There's a history in uh, within the um, FSA, Farm Services Administration, of denying access to the resources of the FSA. There have been efforts to keep farmers from their land, deny them loans that would allow them to uh, be able to uh, be productive farmers. There have been all sorts of heirs. There's a, a whole tradition called heirs' property, H-E-I-R-S, that kind of heir. Uh-huh. Um, there's a whole kind of law that's been practiced in the South for quite a while that's very specifically designed to keep black farmers from inheriting their own family's land, and it makes it accessible, makes it easier for somebody else to come in and 
take over their land. Really? There, yes, there are inequities oh, that we don't even begin no. to understand. Not to mention there are inequities in uh, historic inequities having to do with who has access. I mean, just most recently in the Farm Bill, isn't it striking that we had in this 2018 Farm Bill that was just passed yesterday, we had major, major subsidies giving given away to very large farms. And instead of saying, that could be a problem, let's try to trim those subsidies so that they are more equitably distributed. Oh, no, no. <laughs> instead, we said, oh, we don't think it's sufficient for the spouse to be able to get a subsidy as well as the husband, as well as the other spouse. Instead, let's um, add in nieces, nephews, and cousins as well. Let's try to basically make it so that if you're a large farmer, there is no limit to the payment limitations you can get. And yet there were efforts, such extreme efforts in the House to uh, make it put work requirements on the access to supplement, supplemental nutrition, basically food stamps, payments, so that poor people could get access to food. What a striking inequity. There are inequities throughout the ag system, of course, having to do with farm workers, having access to loans. There are many inequities throughout the system. And our job is to try our best to make sure that the proposals that we develop keep a, a lens of what is fair and wh what are those historic injustices and how can those injustices be corrected through the policies we develop. And that's ongoing. I mean, that it's, it's ongoing. not a simple fix, but it's, a it's right. ongoing. But it is important to not, um, I think, to not flinch about the fact that we have historic racism in the country and institutional racism. I mean, so many ways in which the Social Security Administration and the GI Bill, there's so many ways in which our system has institutionalized racism that we need to just be aware and careful and informed. And of course, we're all still learning. And uh, these conversations can sometimes feel uncomfortable. And that's perfectly understandable and okay. And I appreciate every piece of the education that I get. And I think if we can all engage the issues with the kind of humility that says, when you're a product of a, an environment that is drenched in a kind of structured in racism, then you can expect that we're going to carry some of the mis misconceptions and biases, implicit or explicit, that come from that and keep giving each other encouragement to keep learning. Yeah. And what are some things that individuals can do, particularly in the case of individual women farmers or women, particularly if you are in a community that is not so diverse statistically or in rural areas or, or, or mm -hmm. to have, to bring these, inner, to bring these issues to the table. I, I, you know, what are some things we can do bottom line? Cause it often yeah. feels, especially in more isolated rural areas where population bases skew white still mm -hmm. of, what, what can we tangibly do? One really great thing one can do, in my opinion, is always to let one's representatives, elected representatives, know that the issues matter. Though I'm a white person, 
in a rural area. I care about, I don't want whatever and fill in the blank. I don't want work requirements. And I don't, you know, for that's where low income people. Yes, that's where that. can, but um, I want to make sure that we're talking about, um, you know, reducing the kind of concentration in agriculture that squeezes people out. I want to make sure that our programs are ag- available to people across the board, regardless of race, regardless of uh, gender and uh, sexual, uh, you know, affinity. All of those mean to me that I'm saying to my representatives, I want to have you represent my commitment to justice and to a fair system. And whether it, it can take whatever form it may be taking, make sure that your research agenda is a research agenda that addresses issues of food access, for example. Make sure that there's funding to support a local community's understanding of issues in the food system that may have to do with food access. There's so many things like that. I don't have to myself have the face of racism right at my doorstep to be able to influence it. And I guess the most important one is to be willing to recognize it. And when it does come up, and it sometimes does even in rural communities, to make sure that we openly talk about it and don't make it a comfortable place for um, un, for unjust um, and sort of thoughtlessly biased policies. Those are just right. examples, you know. Oh, thank you. Yeah. There's, there's work to be done. There's work <laughs> but... to be done. There's work to be done. And uh, so many good people who are committed to doing it. We always have to remember that the fact that there are problems is inherent the fact that they're good people is sometimes overlooked by the nature of our awareness of the problems. But we still have wonderful people and many, many people who really can care and do care and are permit, are committed to action. Excellent. That is the perfect note to end on. So thank you very much, Margaret. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots Project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, MOSES. The mission of MOSES is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on MOSES, In Her Boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out MOSESorganic.org.